Well, here we go again. This is episode number five. Number five is the one where we bring in much improved audio. I hope our listeners are appreciating that. That is true. If you don't appreciate it, you should go back and listen to the first episode that we got in. Speaking of catching up, you know, because there's all those avid uh, listeners out there that want to catch up. And on the previous ones, I I hear you recently uploaded the previous episodes on a new platform. Can you tell us about that? I (laughs) did. Well, I finally figured out how to do video editing. And we are now on YouTube. You search for at this is unpacked or the unpacked podcast. Hopefully our SEO is uh, eventually not terrible that you type unpacked podcast and you can actually find us. But if you want to listen to us on YouTube, we are there. And and sh- it should be known that this time around, I am already a subscriber at this moment <laughs> versus our episode two, where I was not yet a subscriber on any platform. But That's now I, I am now a proud subscriber. Uh, of one more platform and then you'll be forgiven. Until then. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. On a moment of levity, maybe I, I'm sure all our listeners are very avid and maybe rabid NFL football fans. I know the two of us maybe are not so. That's uh, Super Bowl just happened. And as Bay Area residents, I think we're supposed to be sad. That's true. I, well, I can tell you're crying a little right now. Because, you know, <laughs> you know, I get it, man. It's, it's that's tough. True. Yep. And I did see a lot of crazy videos on TikTok on, you know, a lot of disappointment. But I, I, I do I do think the TikTok is a is a great way to consume these events in post. You know, in case you, there's no FOMO for me. Like I, I my girlfriend and I were watching some. We were on a plane during the game. So oh, yeah. we, I didn't see it live. But the, the, the TikTok content is stellar, especially anything yeah. covering the Nickelodeon channel, <laughs> the stream of the game, which had a different oh, set of announcers funny. and all sorts of post effects. Hilarious. I also think I saw more of Taylor Swift on TikTok than I saw the actual game. (laughs) Certainly, uh, (laughs) despite the fact that they only had 53 seconds of Taylor content from the game. Well, in all fairness, I'd heard of Taylor Swift before. uh, I'd heard of Travis Kelsey. So uh, (laughs) it's true. I I think most people have. So, uh, so, well, they're both good at their jobs, but one of them happens to be a billionaire and and, uh, world renowned. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll dive into the topics for this week. We're going to talk about two topics. The first one is Meta has stopped recommending political content in all of their recommendation surfaces, particularly Instagram Reels and Threads, which is their Twitter competitor. We'll dive into that a little bit more. And then the second topic we're going to talk about is, well, what's it called now? Gemini, or I guess it was Bard before. Uh, so, <laughs> Google had their equivalent of ChatGPT called Google Bard on the web primarily. They have now rebranded it to Gemini. It's now available, well, disappointingly as a separate app on Android, but not as a separate app on iOS. And it's only also launched to a subset of iOS users, which James is very smug about. I am very smug because I am an avid Android user, have yet to be coaxed into the Apple ecosystem. That's true. I wish uh, I I would have held up as long as you did. (laughs) Well, so with that, let's dive into the first one. So let me take this up. Meta basically made an announcement last week that they will stop recommending political content across their recommendation surfaces. So this is primarily when I say recommendation surfaces, this is essentially places where Meta is essentially the the algorithm that is determining what is being amplified to users. 
if you follow somebody, let's say you follow like a congressman, you follow like a particular account, you will still be able to see most of this, uh, most of the content that they share, both in the news feed on Instagram, like the not the stories. Actually, it is visible in feed and stories. It's a little fuzzy whether it's actually still visible in like the Reels interface itself. I don't know if you read about that, James. I, I think it, it, my impression was that it was also affects like discovery recommendation. Right, in, that's in what the, I thought. The, okay. Scrolling through reels as well. So yeah, that's fair. And then I guess the, for those of our listeners who might not be in the US, there is the presidential election coming up in 2024. And then I think there's also a bunch of other local elections. I know San Francisco has like the mayor election, a bunch of like other local representatives are uh, up for the election again. The other nuance that might be useful is they do mention in their press release that users have the ability to go and toggle whether they want to see political content. It is turned off by default. And we know that a lot of these uh, default settings are very powerful, but users have the ability to go turn on something deep inside the settings. I wonder who those wild people are that will go <laughs> deep in the settings and say, I want more outrage. I want more political content. But yeah, you know, that's true. People out there. <laughs> So, James, first reactions. I uh, I guess, you know, I I think the the distinction on that if you're already following that it's it's not affecting that content. I think that's kind of uh, the opt out. Obviously, is something if he created shouldn't judge our us or users, but uh, a user really really wants open graph recommendations of you know political content. Yeah, they can still opt in, so that's good. They have that. Yep. But then also, I think another signal that a user might be given that they want political content is is following uh, specific accounts. Yep. So I, I think that's good that that's there, like from a user's choice standpoint. I, I, I do wonder, like, how, what, what overall user sentiment will be about this change? Like, we know defaults are powerful. Yep. I wonder how many people were already following a political account or how many were not. You know, I think the, the thing that I looked to when I first thought about this is at least in the US, looking at voter turnout. So of yep. the percent of eligible users, or not users in this case, but as the percent of eligible voters, how many actually ended up voting in the election? And a, a thing that is an interesting change in the US is during a presidential election year, it's significantly higher than during what we call midterm, okay. which is those elections that happen on a two years into a presidential campaign. So a president is elected, voter turn, or voter turnout there is like 55, 60%. Okay. Which, you know, you, you'd, you'd want it to be higher, but it's okay. And then yep. during a midterm election year, which still has important things to, to be elected, it's it's down like 40%. I think oh, most wow. most okay. recently, I think because of the political atmosphere, we had higher than that engagement. So I said 40%, but I think the most recent one had almost 50 for a midterm Interesting. year. Okay. So I, I thought of that kind of dynamic as a signal that, you know, how many people out there are actually going to miss the content you know like they they how many of them are actually engaged enough that they they want this political content in their their sphere you know there's only max 60 percent of people on a presidential year and then even fewer on, on, on lesser years so yeah. how many people are going to be missing the content was the first thing i thought about it that it's is like, true i guess the 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 one thing i would probably push back on the 60 percent is i know in the u.s specifically there are just challenges that make it difficult for users to turn up and vote. Like I know, for example, a lot of people have like multiple jobs, like polls open up at specific hours, close at specific hours. I know that there are also elections during like bad weather season, things like that, where there's storms and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's 
fair, the 60% number, where it's an estimate of like how many people actually ended up voting. But it's probably reasonable to say that the number that cares about like the political process is maybe like higher than that. Certainly, but I, I would say maybe that's where the contrast between presidential and midterm years is important. That's fair. Yeah. Because theoretically, whatever effect from, you know, advertising, advert, uh, voting laws that are inhibit people from voting applies to both midterms and presidential. Yeah. So there's still that, I guess, 20% gap, 15, 20% gap in turnout. Yeah. So I feel that's kind of like a, a natural test on how, in, what's the delta between an engaged voter and a, like, still engaged enough to to vote on a presidential year and a, a yeah. voter that, you know, there's plenty of people out there that are just not politically uh, motivated. <laughs> I think that's fair. I, the, the other lens I was thinking about this from was why is Meta doing this, you know, outside of the election coming up, that timing part of it itself. What else is actually motivating them to make these changes at this point of time? But there's a couple of things which I found interesting. One is in their public statement where they actually talk about these changes. It's a lot more to the tune of, oh, we, know, we don't want to be Twitter, which is fair because See. I think, you know, I used to be a pretty frequent Twitter user before all of this chaos started in the last year. They unleashed the recommendation <laughs> algorithm. Yeah, basically. And I do think it's gotten pretty negative, pretty toxic, or maybe it's always been pretty negative and pretty toxic, but now it's almost, you know, completely unhinged unmoderated there's just all kinds of content on the platform so that's that's kind of their that's kind of their party line on why they are trying to limit political content which is probably fair but some of the other factors that i also started digging a little bit more into they've gotten a lot of slack about political content on like a few different fronts i don't know if you if you heard about this whole genocide that happened in like myanmar a few years back. Yep. They got a lot of flack for it. I mean, WhatsApp was something which was uh, used a lot and even excluding WhatsApp, where, you know, let's say that WhatsApp is a communication tool, even within the Facebook properties, uh, there was this large lawsuit against them on how Facebook did not do enough to prevent this genocide and a lot of content actually got promoted because it was getting engagement and all of that stuff. The Jan 6 capital attacks in the US, that was another one that they got a lot of uh, flack for. I was looking at some data points. Facebook groups apparently was used a lot as part of this whole organization, election denial, all of those things. And there was somewhere to the tune of like 650,000 posts that happened in a very short period of time right after the Jan 6 event that happened here. So all of those, it's you know clearly a large halo in the background of Meta's reputation and that alongside with a lot of the scrutiny that came in a couple of weeks back with their Senate hearing around like exploiting kids and the kind of harm that it's caused for teens and even younger kids for that matter. Yeah, certainly. I think there's probably some level of every country probably has a story of there's something politically happened or maybe not politically, something bad happened that was related yep. to to some someone organizing on Facebook, someone amplifying something on Facebook. And I, I wonder if, you know, maybe maybe a more cynical look is maybe international adoption for Instagram is, is yep. compare the adoption of Facebook versus Instagram. I think Facebook's probably ahead internationally for adoption. This is me without the regard <laughs> looking at the numbers. But in, and so maybe that's part of their their gate. They've learned they've learned this on earlier products and they want yep. to apply it to their their own products. And 
I do think from a philosophical standpoint, they offer, you know, a very powerful tool for amplifying yeah, something, that's a good point. you know, as an advertiser, it's a very powerful platform, but then as someone that would scream into the void maybe, or there's just trying to share content, share their opinion, or as an influencer, I think they have a, a high amount of people engaged with their platform and are looking to be entertained by, by whatever they recommend. And, and so this amplification effect, I think does need some stewardship and they can take it seriously themselves. Or yep. I think at some point it'll be taken seriously for them. And I wouldn't be surprised yep. if part of this is them trying to show that they're serious about it and they don't want further regulation on how they should be handling certain types of content. That's fair. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much of it is, you know, them trying to do the right thing here versus them trying to wash their hands off of this. Because they're like, hey, we know that there is going to be sensitivity when political content is involved. So we're basically trying to step away from this, minimize the amount of content that is even happening on this platform so that, you know, the likelihood of this pro problem coming up is reduced. So I do think that there's some kind of like a product strategy choice there of they're essentially choosing to walk away from this uh, as like a product design decision, you know, rather than rather than it being more like a model decision in some ways. Certainly, maybe a buzzworthy way to describe it is it's kind of like a Disneyification of their of their yeah, products. That's a good point. Where yeah. you know it's kind of like everyone knows Disney's brand, and there's the kid shows and the the yeah. the Marvels, which maybe have violence in them, but it's like always you know the good versus the bad, and and yeah. you know the superheroes win eventually. And so there's a very fuzzy brand around Disney, and they have also they own Hulu, which has other shows that will have a little bit more adult themes or, or difficult topics. Yep. And so I'm not saying that they'll go all the way to have separate brands <laughs> targeting different things, yep. but it does feel like we see past success where it's called them both media properties, where uh, a media property is kind of restricts their content to be more, you know, I don't know, palatable and polite society or okay yep, for kids, right. something like that. And so it, it's not a crazy idea to say, hey, we restrict our content to to not by default give you this stuff. That's a really good point. And I, I think the the other uh, interesting data point that I read in one of their press releases, I don't know how much of this translates to Reels, but they did mention that in the Facebook app itself, the percent of content that is political is today apparently very less. It's like 3%, something like that. Interesting. Which is fairly surprising. And then the other nuance around this I also learned is after a lot of these issues happened, after like Jan 6th in the US, a uh, couple of years back, they made a bunch of algorithm changes around political content, where I think previously they were primarily optimizing for engagement. So it's kind of like if you have an enraged thread with like misinformation on it, and you know, like a recommendation algorithm or like a ranking algorithm does what you design it to do. And if you design it to optimize for engagement, it is going to rank that kind of content higher. So one of the changes that they said they did make around that time is starting to evaluate the political type of content differently. There was not that much detail, but they said something to the tune of using user surveys as a measure for success versus just using you know engagement as the source of truth for training their algorithms. My guess is like some of those changes has also changed the distribution of how much of their content is political. And then with more and more of like reels and things like that, where there is more algorithmic decisioning happening versus maybe feeds where it was, you know, semi-algorithmic, semi-you semi following 
kind of thing this is probably a good point for them to start walking away from some of these more risky decisions which don't have a lot of business upside for them yeah i think the business upside also sounds pretty <laughs> yeah. pretty important here yeah. i i think i'd want to touch on that in a second but related to what you just said I, I am, I will be curious, I guess I, I'll never experience it. It's not part of my, my normal doom scrolling flow does not involve <laughs> Facebook properties, but I, I am curious what they consider political. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's like algorithmically decided or an ML model is, is deciding this, but because yeah. I think at the edges, there's, there's like a difference between uh, a message being political and someone talking about like a policy. I mean, the root of the words is similar, right. <laughs> but if someone's talking about housing policy in the United States. Yep. The, describing the situation and talking about facts, will that be labeled as political versus someone that's trying to push a particular agenda, whether it's, you know, no more tall buildings or more buildings, the, that is clearly more like politically aimed. So I'm, I'm curious how that will end up affecting it is, will it catch the nuance between a policy discussion versus political yeah, activity? Hard. But I think that's a tough thing that, to drive. <laughs> and also, I'm curious how many users are actually, you know, deep in the nose of policy. And I think that, yep. that maybe I'll reference my earlier numbers on like most political topics or policy topics. Yep. Will you get that 40% of eligible voters into that? Maybe not. Maybe they're just being voting how they're told to vote. Yep. That's a good point. I mean, my guess is if you were designing and ranking algorithm for this, you're probably coming up with some kind of like a threshold prediction of, you know, on a scale of like zero to 10, how political this is. And I would not be surprised if somebody had you know, Meta is kind of making this decision. Okay, this is an election year. Like we're okay with, you know, the the threshold for what's considered political is like higher. And, you know, maybe we'll moderate it a lot more in like an election year versus a lot less in a non-election year. So that's, that's, that's like the fascinating state of like where media is today, where there is a bunch of these algorithmically determined platforms, which are, you know, kind of playing with the scale of, you know, what gets amplified or not. Certainly. And I think that's a, that's a, not exactly a dark secret, but it's a, it's a <laughs> I think folks that aren't used to it should be aware of is a lot of these things, there's kind of like a, a target, target that you're aiming for and you can turn the the knob, so to speak of, right. of more or less. Usually it, the, the, it's not humans validating everything. It's, it's, a, it's some sort of AI and you can tune it for getting the outcome you want. And so it's, it's not, it's likely that this is not like a blanket, all recommendation is gone. They're saying it's all gone, but Yep, it's probably right. like something that is quoted to be at least 50% right. political is gone, you know, and they, they twist that knob as you described. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the, the other one, okay, so I think I understand why Meta made this decision, right? I think historically they've shown time and again that they're essentially like a hardcore capitalistic entity. They care about shareholder value a lot more than stakeholder value. They've kind of consistently shown in the past that they're willing to make trade-offs that increase like students shareholder value, even if that comes at the cost of affecting democracies. So I guess even even with that bias, if I'm trying to be fair, okay, I can understand why Meta made that decision. With I think what concerns me about this is in terms of political discourse today, especially in the US, there is a lot changing. We talked about this a little bit last time where Cable news is basically in like structural decline. It has been in structural decline for a long time. Cable uh, itself. <laughs> news might be the last part of cable yeah, that's still exactly. alive. Yeah, that's, 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 that's right. There are a lot of media organizations have been through like layoffs even in the last couple of months. 
I was trying to look at the list of companies that had layoffs. There's NBC, Business Insider, LA Times. All of them had layoffs in the last month. California, sorry, Canada has a pretty large media corporation called Bell Media, which I think is owned by like Bell Labs, but they own a bunch of media properties. They had a pretty large round of uh, layoffs this week. So like a lot of these structured media organizations are becoming more and more smaller. And one of the trends we talked about last time is like this essentially, whatever you want to call it, like dispersion, decentralization of like how news propagates and how like discourse around civic issues is happening. It's becoming more and more distributed and it is getting distributed through platforms like YouTube, through platforms like Instagram, through platforms like TikTok. And that's just like the reality of how this information moves around today. These are less of I mean, they are editorial in some ways where, you know, they're kind of holding the keys to the algorithm and what gets amplified or not. But they're, they're primarily like distribution channels. And then when one of, you know, the top three distribution channels starts limiting the kind of content that can go around, I think that that, that is fairly detrimental to like state of democracies. Like you're you're essentially, again, like I I understand that Meta as a private company is allowed to do whatever the hell they want. It is their platform. They can control, they can like not show things, they can show things. But I do think this essentially putting on a default where by default, this content is not visible to users. I think that's going to significantly limit the amount of political discourse happening, especially going into an election year. And and so what's the alternative then that they they would continue to have this but add more fact checking or, or what? what's the alternative you see? Yeah, I, th I think there's probably more clinical solutions that you can think about, right? For example, I use TikTok a bunch. It's been interesting. I think my TikTok feed used to be much less political before. And I think I'm starting to see a lot more political content over the last uh, few months, maybe. And I don't know if that's a consequence of just the... Uh, the algorithm identifying what I like more or what I want more of versus, you know, is this actually like an external thing? There's like a lot happening in the world right now. But I do think that on TikTok, for example, there are a lot of legitimate media properties, which are, you know, not like old school CNN, you know, the established media properties, but there are a lot of like smaller digital first media properties that actually create a lot of very valuable content and that gets distributed through TikTok. And then there is also a bunch of junk content. Like you can actually literally see them in the names of the accounts, for example. Right? It'll be like a, a junk string. There is, you know, they have a random set of followers. They have a random set of, of users, a random set of like videos that they've uploaded. You can actually go to the account and then you could fairly easily as a human look at it and say, okay, this is not legit. You know, so if I think like one clinical solution can be like, you know, can you weed out accounts like that? Like actually have, you know, truly quote unquote verified accounts, you know, so that it's not just a bunch of random people spewing misinformation. Certainly. Yeah. I think the verifying something like that, I, I've also come across short form video content from traditional media or more trustworthy sources. I remember early in the pandemics, there's found the ones from the Washington Post really funny. And the more recently yeah. I've seen some from, I forgot, uh, NPR maybe. Oh, yeah. And so there's clear cases where whether the content is political or not, or it's just describing the situation, it's maybe something to evaluate, but that like that content can be made by traditional, it's just a channel, right? Like you said, the, the content is being made by by news organizations. Absolutely. There's also like podcast clips, for example. I think I've seen oh, a lot of podcast clips of like interesting content. 
On like fairly both ends of the spectrum, Lex Friedman did this interview with Jared Kushner, who is, you know, obviously a controversial person. He's Trump's son-in-law. He was also the Middle East foreign advisor or whatever to like President Trump. And I think it was good to hear that perspective, whether you like agree with that or not. And at the same time, you know, he's also had people from, you know, fully the other side of the spectrum. Like recently he had somebody that's a Palestinian activist and come and talk about like how he thinks about the issue with Israel. I think that there is a lot of value in open discourse if you can figure out, you know, ways to love legitimate voices to come up and cut out the things that are like junk and misinformation. Yeah, to some extent, maybe we can con- contrast this with the the past technology of how, how cable news worked, yep. where this open graph recommendation software before Facebook changes, giving you you know, whatever political content, yep. that's different than the status quo on, on news channels where typically, at least in the US, whichever way you were raised or your family leans, you usually, your team yep, follows a certain news <laughs> channel, right? Yep. So to some extent, you're, those folks are already locked into an ecosystem of a certain point of view and there's very little open graph recommendation. I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now. Yep. And that because they just, those news companies have certain or certain goals and they'll structure their content to achieve those goals. And maybe once in a while they'll have like interviews that are across the aisle or something like that. But with this open graph stuff that you, you the algorithm, I guess, yes. <laughs> has control of what you see. And, and so, I mean, maybe you end up with the same result where you only engage in the stuff that reinforces your worldview. And so the algorithm only gives you stuff yeah, on your 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 team's content, but there that is something that could have existed where they continue to allow political content. But now you can only have the stuff from your team because yep. theoretically the totally. people that do want the content will are subscribed to their favorite you know news outlet or political actor. And I think there's like reasonable ways to actually solve for this problem. For example, you know the the whole echo chamber problem problem of you're just listening to views that are very close to your own. Like with something like large language models today, right? Like you could basically take a podcast clip and throw it into chat GPT and say, hey, okay, tell me on a spectrum of left to right, like where does this view fall? Right? And if you are constantly 80% of the time, like maybe you're leaning like left or you're leaning right, there's a, there's a way to more thoughtfully algorithmically say, okay, we will give you the stuff that you like or the stuff that resonates the most with you. But you also kind of randomize this with, I mean, TikTok does this randomization really well. Like TikTok has, I think that's the thing that they do much better than Reels and like the reason their recommendation algorithms and like the reason the content that they come up with is a lot better is like they do a really good balance of, you know, explore versus exploit. Certainly. And I had a thought related to what you're describing is, is, you know, I think the, at the end of the day, what's difficult here is they are offering an entertainment product. So talking about that effect of showing people content that maybe they disagree with or like an alternative worldview than the one they traditionally subscribe to. Yep. And I think it's difficult is at the end of the day, if you're trying to maintain active users, you don't want to scare them away. You want the quote unquote good outrage that keeps them engaged and wants to, you know, yell on the internet, right? That, I guess that's fair. Yeah. Maybe that's what they want. But but if you if you give them stuff they don't, they're not going to engage with it. They're going to be like, I don't like what I see on Instagram anymore. I've started using it less. Now I'm on YouTube. You know, so I, I wonder I wonder if there's some amount of that in the calculation of, I mean, that's kind of what you alluded to when yep. we were teeing this up is, maybe it was a better at the end of the day win for them as far as user engagement goes to remove the stuff because they could 
give people content that maintained engagement while removing something that could potentially give them negative effects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think I see maybe like a couple of interesting opportunities from for other companies, you know, given Instagram's taken this stance with political content. I think TikTok's actually done, I mean, I know I, I talk about TikTok a lot, but <laughs> I think that they've done a reasonably good job of, you know, trying to have some level of trust on the platform. I know they're 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 in the midst of a lot of controversy because they're not a U.S. company and their CEOs from Singapore that. though. In case no, that <laughs> in people case missed I, that coverage, <laughs> but but I, but I think like they've done somebody like TikTok. I think can actually come in and say, okay, like we're not shutting down political content. Like we're willing to kind of take on that risk because it's like meaningful content and it's actually something that people do reasonably care about and then find that you know more clinical approach of how do you put this out more thoughtfully rather than uh, just like letting the most uh, angry opinions go around. That's That I think is like one opportunity for existing platforms. I also think that there's probably some room for a startup or somebody to come up and build like a more thoughtful, civic, specific platform. You know, maybe it's not, I don't, I don't know if people want to have a completely civic specific platform but i do think that there's like a lot of opportunity i think that civic accountability is a huge problem i i, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen some of these accounts on instagram and tiktok there's a couple of these congressmen for example that that do a really good job of they have their accounts they try to publish you know like every few days when there is like an actual you know discussion happening in the house or the senate like they would actually come and talk about okay hey on the ground like here's what's happening and like and at the end of the day, like the elected representatives, like they're I mean, as much as they are civic leaders, like they're they're also like civic servants where your job is to actually be accountable to the people that put you in power. And I think that there's this huge vacuum now where people feel a little bit disappointed with their elected officials and there's not really like a good communication mechanism to fix that. Yeah, I think being able to do be more the digital first as a representative in a yeah. democracy certainly will be like an important skill to differentiate yourself. But then also on the on the topic of of other platforms making a different decision, I'm going to extend my Disneyification analogy a little yeah. further. For those in the US, we also have a channel. Well, now they're in the middle of rebranding stuff, but previously people might know HBO that has a lot right. more content that's yeah. like trends to be more adult, adult content not in the pornographic sense but in the like difficult topics or like engaging difficult things or you know higher more difficult things that are not appropriate for children that's what i'm trying to say which is totally different than disneyification or a disney property and then going even further with this analogy that's uh maybe rougher on the edges there's also a channel in the u.s called c-span which is kind of almost raw yep. raw <laughs> content <laughs> from what's happening. from yep. the from the capitol hill and stuff like that yep. and so I, it, applying that analogy to what you just said yeah there's opportunity for if Facebook's going to, Facebook and its properties are going to be Disney, there's opportunity for someone out there to be more HBO and opportunity, probably more in a nonprofit sense for someone to be C-SPAN. But, but we're missing that aggregation layer of turn on your TV and, and channel, screw scroll through your channels. So I, I don't know exactly how that'll work, but, <laughs> but yeah, I see that out there. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess where we land on is, well, we understand why Meta did what they did. It's not surprising that they are optimizing for themselves and their shareholders, but it's clearly a vacuum for civic issues and maybe another platform kind of swoops into this opportunity. Agree. All right. With that, we will transition into our next topic. 
All right. So it's up to me to tee this one up. So our topic today, Viggy, will be Gemini slash Bard. And so for those that aren't familiar, Gemini is Google's branding for their chat GPT style interface that where you can interact with their large language model, all those AI that have been in the news. And actually that's, you know, in classic Google form, there's always a question about names changing and naming <laughs> publicly, naming being bad, which I think is like low hanging fruit here, but I, I will comment on the fact that, um, so this announcement happened recently here in February, but back in December, there was an announcement involving Gemini as well. So now what's the difference? And it, just a brief point of nuance is the models themselves are called Gemini, just yep. like in the pe- previously, there was a model called Bard. Yep. And previously, I think there was one called Palm. I'm, I'm not sure. No <laughs> one really keeps track of these things. Yep. And But there's also this chat interface where you can talk with the, the AI that is also bearing the same name. So Bard's interface was called Bard and Gemini's interface is called Gemini. And we're supposed to, as consumers, understand all this nuance. But the takeaway <laughs> here is their new interface, like ChatGPT, is called Gemini. Yep. And it is powered by their large language model that's called Gemini. <laughs> and similar to, so you can compare this to the p- most popular one, ChatGPT. They're powered by, it's made by a company called a- OpenAI. And they're powered by, their models have different names. And so one might be GPT-3 is one name for OpenAI's model. And their most advanced one right at that time of recording, I think is called GPT-4. And there's an intermediate one, uh, GPT-3.5 and there's yep. so many names out there, but the point in uh, hi- highlighting that is that Google also has different levels here, and that was part of the December announcement around Gemini. So Gemini announced in December, talked about how there's three different levels of Gemini. There's Gemini Nano, which yep. is made for on-device tasks, which I think limited release to Pixel 8 Pro phones or something like that. So this is Gemini the model, not Gemini the app. Correct. <laughs> so their usage of Gemini the model, right. uh, Nano, is in the Pixel 8 Pro phones. Gemini Pro is the one that powers that chat interface on the web er, and app, which I'll talk about in a second. <laughs> and a Gemini Ultra is the subscription required version where it's the same interaction a consumer would have with Gemini Pro. Yep. But they are paying money, so they get the more advanced one, which is largely follows OpenAI's pricing. Interesting. Is there is there is there a large difference between the the Gemini Ultra and I guess like the regular Gemini model? So I have yet to be convinced to pay for it. So I don't know. <laughs> they do talk about how they've done a lot of improvements to the model, and Ultra is the best of the best Got of it. the model, <laughs> and Pro is the one like that's more yeah. balanced that makes the trade off between you know handling up a wide range of what's the word like like they can they can handle a diversity of things to do okay. whereas ultra is meant for for high complexity tasks Got it. okay i guess that's not surprising i, I know OpenAI has also had multiple versions of the gpd models and they've recently launched something that's cheaper and more powerful compute and all of that stuff so i do think that there's been a I think there's been an arms race going on with especially these model providers. And I know we've talked a little bit about this before around uh, how a lot of this layer of model builders are maybe getting more and more commoditized, given, you know, maybe they don't have access to as much unique data compared to anybody else. But yeah, that makes sense that there's more of these coming up. Certainly, yeah. And I think one of the key features for Gemini that is an improvement over BARD that they highlight besides Vaguely, it's improved reasoning capabilities, which I think I, would, I have an axe to grind about. Is I would say these things don't reason; they're just <laughs> spitting things out. Like, but I think that's yeah. that's picking at nits. 
but they it also has it's they say it's a multimodal by nature by default by nature yep and what they mean by that multimodal like the mode with which you're communicating with it so whether you speak to it whether you type to it or even whether you send a photo to it it can ingest all that kind of data and with it your interactions with it that's a really cool one i mean i think that that we haven't talked a lot about multimodal before but i do think it's a pretty large change in construct in terms of you know being able to process images and videos and text in potentially like a single interface i know this has been like one of the limitations with the more you know traditional audio assistants like the series and the google assistants of the world where they were almost limited to a single interface and well in case of audio there's not even an interface it's essentially audio as the conversation format versus actually being able to augment audio with something like a video or a visual interface i think that i think that that's that's a really significant advancement and again this is not necessarily like a google thing i know gpt4 or gpt4 turbo those are also multimodal so i do think that this is like a notable improvement but you know maybe tbd how google's multimodal is that much different from the other ones in the market yeah as as far as a consumer relevant application the multimodal thing i think is important for an everyday person you know i think a episode ago or two episodes ago we were making fun of maybe maybe it was an on mic when we were making fun of them but talking about the humane ai pen oh, yeah. and the <laughs> rabbit r1 product yep. and a lot of those are talking about oh you use like their demo was tapping on it and saying what is this you know what's a fistful of almonds yeah and and i think that might seem weird but with this experience it kind of makes sense where you could be like send a picture we just did this during our setup where i yep. we were debating oh what's this you know foam cover for a mic <laughs> and you're like oh I, i'm just going to you know search something real quick with the cover end of mic and i was like i pulled out gemini and i said what is this and it was able to strap it was like the black thing and it was able to figure out what it was and i think there are very cool practical use cases to this i don't know if you saw the recent uh, galaxy samsung galaxy ads just circle it yeah just circle it yeah that was i think that was like a cool idea you know like they weren't really like trying to sell the model it was like a very simple consumer idea mm-hmm. you see a product you don't know where the product is from you just want the product you know circle the thing and go find it so and i uh, another cool example i saw was have you seen those like complicated parking restriction oh, yeah <laughs> san francisco and la have these yeah, yeah. like i i think in new york and stuff it's even worse mm-hmm. where it's just you know five boards on top of each other it's 5 p 5 pm to 9 pm is like street cleaning and it's also like permit only on some specific days so one of the really cool use cases was like just take a screenshot of all of those boards and then ask the multimodal whatever llm like can i park now you know or like can i park now for 3 hours so i thought those were like pretty significant improvement in like user interfaces and that's pretty i, I agree and I, i think the the way gemini shows this is so maybe i should step back and talk about the, the how you access it there's the web yep. ui which yep. people might be familiar with chatgpt and previous version bard and then on iphone within the google app on iphone there will be that which as as you found out you aren't in the roll out of that yet so you can't actually <laughs> access an I- yep. iphone that's right <clears throat> and then on android there's a separate app just called gemini and where it's even more interesting and it's there's some good synergy here with being the platform owner and a developer of this is is you can replace your on device google assistant yep. with gemini and so when i say the magic phrase that activates my 
on device assistant. I'm, it it starts with okay. <laughs> exactly. It's a different looking UI that pops up. Yep. And I have the option to attach what my current, like screenshot of my current screen, which is also interesting. So it really uh, embeds that multimodal nature. And you just, it's right there. You're interacting with it. So I feel like as far as a consumer experience standpoint, that that's a lot more natural to be like, you know, help me with this thing in the moment versus pause, type, 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 type. Yep. Yep, <laughs> oh, look sure. at this chat experience I'm experiencing. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so happy that I'm forced to do this in a chat way. You know, you just want to answer. You just want to do your thing, right? And so it's, there's a little bit more of just do your thing kind of thing going on with the with that experience as your assistant on, on Yeah, the I think that's phone. really cool. And in, in some ways, I do think that they're catching up to ChatGPT. Like ChatGPT has had a mobile app for a few months now. And I actually, I, I found the app to be really useful or I, I think f- just purely from a user interface standpoint, it's got like this, I don't know if you've seen the interface. It's got like this ridiculously simple interface. It's like- I haven't uh, seen it on mobile, but I've oh, yeah, seen it on web. It's incredible. It's literally like, it's like Craigslist in an app, you know? <laughs> it's got like one text box. It's got like a single linear page where, you know, you have a conversation and there's literally nothing else in the page. There's one input box at the bottom and then a text stretch at the top where you like see your answers. So I think that's been like an incredible simplification of an interface in some ways where, you know, it can do a lot of things, but the cool thing is like it does it in this fairly intuitive UX kind of way, which I think that Google was probably overloading a lot of their interfaces, even on web uh, when they had the part product, for example. It still felt a little bit more like a loaded product, whereas with ChatGPT, it was like all the power with the Craigslist interface. So that critique still applies. <laughs> the the Gemini UI feels a little bit more polished, but it still has that like a little more polish in that they added even more polish on it. So it mm, feels more right. like yeah. a final consumer product than even Bard felt like. Yep. But I think the contrast with your Craigslist style UI, it's, that sounds very utilitarian. Yep. I've seen it on Absolutely. the web, but I haven't seen a mobile. The, the Gemini on both on mobile and web, I find that it feels like it's got that soft touch from a designer to make it appealing <laughs> to me as a user. But the downside is it's really hard for me to like screenshot stuff. The information density is low. So on, on web, on my big screen at home, that's fine. It's not really affected by it. But when I'm on my phone, it's like my question is off the screen and there's the the LLM's response. And so I kind of feel a little bit of friction there where, you know, I understand it's prettier, but yeah. like even when I take a screenshot, I can't show, and I want to share someone a cool thing. I can't show them like my question and the response. It's like just the response. And I, I know it's, it's a little bit of a gripe with what the consumer's experience is here. I, I think one of the, one of the things I was thinking about was what is it that, you know, chat GPT or like Bard or I guess Gemini now, the app can like distinctly do. You know, what is it that they can uniquely do? And one of the things, um, I know we talked about this a little bit off mic before, is uh, Google is by default connected to a lot of Google applications. So the examples that they had in their press release was around, you know, being able to pull from within your Gmail if you were using like Google Workspace or being able to pull from your calendar or even being able to pull for something like, you know, Google Flights, for example, all of which in in the case of chat GPT are often enabled through like integrations, which are a lot more clunkier. There's a lot more dependency on like external developers to uh, support this and build experiences for that. So I do think that Google has a distinct advantage where they have a suite of products 
kind of similar to the Microsoft Copilot where, you know, if you are already using the Office suite of productivity tools, it kind of gives you access to more native things that you can do within these series of applications. So yeah, this is, we were talking about the, what's the consumer experience here. Yep. Earlier we were talking about multimodal being a difference and that's cool. Yep. And I think the other part is what you just described and the technical term for it is retrieval augmented generation. And so this, yeah, that's yep. what the technical yeah, term yeah. is so, for it. Yep. And that it's essentially, you can teach a large language model to to know that it, teach it how to go somewhere for a specific type of information. Yep. And then it will know when a user's query what they want something from a specific source that it'll go there itself and so like you mentioned this this support it comes in the user interface it's kind of obvious when you do a query and it thinks that you need to reference another service if you ask about a local business yep. or a, a video or I forgot my other example it, it it shows a little logo of that service like the little youtube one a loading sign or like the maps and a loading sign and so uh, it, you kind of see that it's querying that and it talks about how it queried it from there but like you said, it can only access it can only access Google services, yeah, and it can also fine. access select websites. Which I found out I was on a plane the other day, and I had plane Wi-Fi, so enough to browse the web sometimes. But sometimes it would be slow. So interesting use case I found is I would ask Gemini to read the website for me. Yeah. Well, well, specifically wasn't that well, wasn't downloading, so I was trying to read the technical report about Gemini. So basically, it's performance against other other right. large language models. Yep. And the PDF wasn't downloading because I think, you know, the airline <laughs> didn't want me to download a PDF even though it was like megabytes. <laughs> and it was the older Wi-Fi where you can't stream. Anyway, I asked Gemini to summarize the response or the the compare the performance within and was able to talk about stuff. Yep. Of course. I wasn't able to go verify that like it's yeah, referencing real numbers, but it was cool that Gemini could like download this PDF, read stuff about it, or potentially it already had something in its quote unquote brain about the PDF and it could summarize some stuff out of it for me. And this connection with this RAG ability is is very interesting for applications like that you might have a com more complex task to do. I mean, the simple one that I was uh, messaging you about was I, there was a YouTube video. I didn't really want to watch the whole thing. And so I was like, we'll summarize the, it was like a Q and A with the creator. And yeah. that's a really cool use case. Yeah. 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 I was like, you know, I, I care about this creator's like content, but I don't really want to listen to 20 minutes Q and A. So I just asked it to summarize. Um, actually it occurs to me that I didn't actually send you this example. I, I think the meta version I did as I sent the YouTube upload of our most recent episode of the podcast. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I asked it to summarize yep. and give it an outline format. Yep. And and it wasn't perfect, but it, it did reference like how we structured our talk. And and so that was really cool to me, you know, exactly how it's doing that. I think maybe needs some more research, especially because it's like video. Is it using the transcript? Is it actually processing the video? We don't know. But it was able to access YouTube. And what's interesting is it it can't access Spotify, for example. I had a similar interaction yep. where I was asking about a Taylor Swift song and I asked it, can I have a Spotify link? And it was like, yep. blah, 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 can't do that. <laughs> and then I asked for one for YouTube and it gave me one, like straight to the music video. So yep. there's great interplay, as you talked about, with being able to link out yep. to their services. I, I guess the, the, the question I had on my mind is, I, I definitely see the consumer value from this, you know, and I know Google has shown some demos of like example applications that AI could do. I think they showed this demo of uh, uh, of like the assistant basically trying to talk to the customer service rep or, you know, something that you want to get your subscription canceled and you don't want to stay in line for a long time. Uh, so I definitely see 
those kind of use cases which you know maybe the assistant can do down the line and this becomes a really good the more google can have a direct interface with a consumer where they can actually like do this very easily so i definitely see the consumer value and like the long term application of this the part that i struggled with is is this like a direct monetization you know like i know that they have some of those paid tiers of the gemini models for consumers i'm curious what's your take on is this actually something that consumers would pay for it's interesting because i myself am not paying for <laughs> i know of people that pay for chatgpt's yeah. version i don't know i think the thing maybe it's just it's early in the maturity for these kind of products yep is i i feel like we're all forced to into this chat interface you know and that's the default way that we should be benefiting from these technologies and and so give me you had that example with doing a phone call for you that's cool but there's some interactions that i am asking an ai a model but sometimes or sorry asking an ai a question and we want to go back and forth on chat thing sometimes there's something complex i want to do you know yep. like uh in but i end up having to spend you know 20 30 minutes making a spreadsheet you know grabbing stuff and blah 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 and i feel like it would be great if it could just do that for me but like the interaction would be maybe more like microsoft copilot's demos of it an application rather than a chat interface yeah but you know yeah. we talked about in previous podcasts like i yep. do think at the os level is probably the right place but i want it to be able to do lots of stuff for me you know <laughs> and right now in the chat interface it can't yep. really like uh, today you know there i think there's two sides to it there's you can think of an app they designed it for a certain use case and yep. it's going to be able to work for your core use case you just got to go there and do it yep but if i know what i want to do i really have to follow the tap 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 yep. going through the yep. flow here i'm like <laughs> looking for a restaurant that's open in this area blah 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 and like why do i have to tap through all that stuff wouldn't it be great if i could say you know give me this and it just opens the app with the results there right like part of the what's part of the upload sorry part of the multimodal or like the the rag integration with with Gemini yep. is it'll give you like map results and it'll be like in a Google map that's really and cool. you, you can yeah. see it visualized that's cool yep. but at the same time I'm still in this darn chat interface <laughs> I, I think I can click through and end up on maps but still it's it feels a little unnatural where there's like, only so much that a chat interface can do for you you know even yeah. if it's like a fully loaded up chat interface even if you start supporting like complex media and like images and videos and all of that Yeah, I think you're right. Why why do they have to get there from a chat, you know? Like like maybe someday it'll jump straight there. So I don't know. I think your original question was who would pay for this and right. I think my reticence for paying for it is it, it I don't feel like it feels I feel like it saves me time yet, right? The, the okay. whole point of it being a better assistant or this chat interface being more powerful is that it should save me time and yep. and I, I think like to address that it has to have these usability improvements where it's really legit saving me time. I've had previous experiences with other ones and working with like very specific technical questions of right. like <laughs> how do I use a certain Amazon web services service? Like how do I yep. use step Amazon step functions and it was able to like another the ChatGPT was able to walk me through it. So I can see it really applying there. But like in my everyday normal person life, it's it's not yep. really. I think that's fair. I I I actually ended up a couple of times paying for ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe the first time was just more out of like curiosity to see, you know. They I think so right now the GPT-4 model is still behind a paywall so you can access like 3.5 for free but the GPT-4 models are paywall. 
the multimodal functionalities paywall so if you want to use like images and things like that that's not available in the 3.3.5 model the other thing i think that's paywalled is uh, i mean when we were doing some of our podcast stuff like i was trying to you know stick in our transcript and say hey can you give me like takeaways from this conversation right just to see what what is the level of coherence with which it can give a summary and again that's a lit- that's a bit paywalled because of like the length of the mm, text involved so all of those are like i think they were like interesting friction points which made me consider upgrading but yeah i think you're right like i'm i think that there is only so much that a single central you know chat based interface can do for you and i kind of landed in a place where okay i used this occasionally like sometimes i want you know answers to random questions and i don't want to read four pages you know for different like links <laughs> i actually I have been using it in that sense like that has even the unpaid version is good enough to be able to summarize some stuff for me yep. I, I, but I, i do think what you said is exactly true and the, the other half of why i'm not paying for it so there's that friction or like doing more powerful stuff that i might want to pay for the other half that was holding me back from paying for it is general trust about it i had a really fun interaction when i was first messing with gemini and i have a friend that's really into taylor swift and yeah. so i asked i was trying to go through the flow of okay let's just find out what her most recent song was and then give me a link for it whatever and i was like wow yeah. this is like natural and it's working well and i was sending screenshots to my friend yeah. and my friend was correcting me no that's wrong No, that's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. And so like at the end of the day it was like okay I once I corrected it and said actually I think it's XYZ and we're like why did you have this date wrong and it would be that's talking right. about it. eventually yeah. I coached it to the right answer. So not exactly. But but I guess that one's probably going to get better with time, you know, where maybe the accuracy of the retrieval and all of that certainly is better, but I think you're right. Yeah, I agree with you that. Yeah, so at this moment in time why I'm not paying for it is like one half is yeah. is it powerful enough to do what that save me time or benefit me? Yeah. The other half is does it actually reliable give me answers if it's doing some sort of summarization or like pulling in data from different sources and dumping it into a spreadsheet for me or or pulling out some key data from a video or PDF that does sound like it's saving me a lot of time yep. but if at the same time I can't trust its output right. <laughs> how much time savings is going on so I think it, those are the two halves that hold me back from 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 paying for it yeah that's a good point i mean i i guess if i was thinking from like google's perspective There's probably a couple of angles like one is just like a defensive angle you know where if ChatGPT has an app and you don't have an app you're kind of leaving like a beachhead open for attack and you don't want to do that like I know a lot of the open source work that a lot of big tech has done has been less of a, you know we want to be like the good guys and contribute to the world kind of thing and more of okay if this is how you're competing let me just throw this out in the open so that you can't compete on this anymore like even with the llama models for example I was going to say yeah. why is the model llama yeah. model free you know <laughs> exactly. like they are incentivized for they want more yeah. models exactly so it's, i do think that there is like a competitive play where you know maybe they don't want chat gpt to become like the primary search interface like they've tried to defend that entry point with consumers for the longest time and i do think it makes sense for them to just offer this even if it's like a free functionality as long as you know they can somehow make the economics of that work that that's probably one the 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 second this this is the random thought i think this is a bit of my hypothesis and i'm <laughs> i'm here to validate if this is like broadly true i think that people are i think people have their guards down a lot more when they're talking into an open ended chat interface versus google search 
I don't know if you felt that way. For example, when I generally search something on Google search, I will try to go into like incognito. I'll try to make sure like Google doesn't get my data. But for example, when I'm asking like random stuff to chat GPT, because it's like a clean single box, there's not really much around it. It somehow psychologically feels like you can let your guard down. But I don't think it's actually true because I think now you're giving up like a lot more information. Maybe you're giving a lot more nuance of information about yourself. But that, I do think that if that is true, that's a nice play for Google where, you know, this kind of opens up a flood of new data for them about the consumers. I, I think I, I agree with that. It feels more <laughs> natural kind of experience. Like on one hand, that your first point on they don't, they want to be defensive and not let ChatGPT take users from you yep. or from them totally agree that I, I'm not paying for the product, but they definitely should be building something like this right now, right? That That's clearly in demand. Yeah. But then on your point on letting your guard down, I, I definitely agree. I, I have a, a friend and it's really funny, his interaction with assistants, it's, I think it's half ironic, half not ironic, <laughs> is is like using smart home devices. He'll, Interesting. He'll, like, okay. would, yep. he'll be like obnoxious. Oh, hey, you just like ask it to do something like, you know, turn <laughs> off these lights, even though they're not, maybe not smart or something like that. Yeah. Those interactions are much more natural than, you know, like you would do like in a Google search or something like that, not that you Google search on your phone, yeah. but like this interaction feels a lot more natural. You just ask it some absurd thing. And then sometimes it actually does it, you know, or he's, oh, what's that song? Blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, like some vague reference and it can figure it out. And so I do think there's like a little bit of inhibitions dropped when you're, when you're speaking or typing towards it. And, and, and so there, there, there's an, a, a bit of an opportunity there to reactivate that, that data engine, uh, yeah. so, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> Yeah, maybe absolutely. maybe as a, a last point, I do feel like we've talked a lot about like the pay tier, which would you pay or not like yep. that. I think it would be important to maybe cover what exactly comes in with the paying. Yep. So strategically very similar to ChatGPT's paid tier, ChatGPT Plus, oh, yeah. which costs, I think, $20 a month. Yep. Um, yep. This new, the gym, the ultra version, the most powerful version of their thing, mm -hmm. which is, again, similar to, to ChatGPT, is available if you're a paying customer. The paying customer pays uh, $19.99 a month. So okay. same price, 20 bucks. Yeah, and but it's it's uh, so it's price to be compared with that. But where it's interesting is it's actually a, a tier in their Google One to subscription. So Google One, for those of you out there that aren't yep. uh, part of the, the glory, glory glorified Android Android gang, uh, <laughs> is similar to what you have on iPhone. You might have an iCloud account. You might be paying for photo storage or something yep. like that. There's probably different tiers and stuff like that. Google's version of that is called Google One, and it also bundles in the the storage. Also includes your drives, your photos, and stuff like that. And so there's a new tier for for Google One called Gemini AI Interesting. Plan, okay. something like that. And so it includes access to this higher tier of Gemini. There's a more powerful Gemini. And it will include Gemini being able to do the workspace stuff we talked about earlier, like being integrated. As but I'm guessing it's $2 for Google Storage versus, you know, $20 for the blown up version. So what's interesting is the cheapest tier, you get free 15 gigs on Google One. Okay. The cheapest tier to pay for, which I'm running against to finally, <laughs> is $2.99 a month. These yeah, are the, okay. the the annual fee, annual price is slightly cheaper, but anyway, we're talking about monthly. Yep. $2.99 a month. And I think that's a 200 gigabyte storage. What's interesting here is the next level up, $19.99, includes two terabyte of storage and mm. XYZ extra like workspace light features in their thing. But now they're adding Gemini Ultra on top of that without changing anything else about the plan. So in like a pricing, a consumer yeah. interest thing, you can pay 20 bucks for ChatGPT or mm -hmm. you can pay 19.99, 
get two terabytes of storage, all sorts okay. of, you know, workplace features that are like not available to a general Gmail subscriber. And you get Gemini within all your workspace stuff. So it, it's a very interesting bundling play where you, yeah, you're paying $20 a month, but you're also getting two terabytes of storage. Like previously the two terabytes already cost 20 bucks a month. So I think it's a very interesting, uh, a bundling strategy. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I do think we've maybe talked about this in our previous episodes. I think that there is an opportunity for assistance, particularly in kind of like the SaaS and SaaS adjacent worlds where, you know, uh, you're talking about Google Sheets, having an assistant there. To me, that feels closer to, you know, Microsoft's co-pilot offering rather than like a Google assistant, which is, you know, maybe a lot more consumer facing, a lot more like a Siri kind of thing. I do think that in the SaaS world, there's probably a more propensity to maybe not necessarily pay for the AI assistant, but, you know, maybe you upgrade to a better plan. Maybe you retain better because you have this assistant. I know we were talking a little bit about like Descript, which is the audio editing software we use now. One of the cool things that Descript does is it's got a bunch of this it's got a bunch of AI capabilities sprinkled as part of their user interface. So it's not like a chat thing where you go in and say, hey, do this thing for me. But it's got a bunch of things that are sprinkled across like the workflow of editing. So the first time you upload an audio, it like automatically transcribes it for you. And then once you have a transcript, you can tell it like, hey, pick like five blurbs from this that you think are like most interesting so that you can create clips out of it, things like that. So it maybe goes back to your point around like non-chat based interfaces that are embedded into the actual workflow where you're like actually doing things and maybe there's a propensity to either pay additionally for that product or just you know be like better retained to that kind of like a SaaS product. I do think along those lines the consumer benefit from all these LLMs and AI with this yeah. whole wave I think is going to be felt at the edges where like all our products yeah, are going to have exactly. all this extra things that are more natural to use because they applied this technology to it. As far as a chat interface, they're still figuring it out. Is it going to be a chat interface? Are your assistants just going to be better? Are we just like, how, how is that going to involve? I think those are two different things. As a feature within existing software, totally agree. There's all sorts of things that are better today already because companies have been applying this technology. Yeah, but as right. far as that chat interface that you're paying for that does stuff, like how does that not just get owned by Apple and Google? And how does that not just yeah. run on your device instead of on costly servers? I don't know. I kind of yeah. see it trending that way, but but it'd be interesting to see how this chat interface evolves. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think the, I know you've brought up the idea of running this on device, which we haven't specifically talked about a lot, but I think we've talked about it in the context of device-based assistance. So I do feel like this sets Google up in that path of having something that is like machine learning and LLM driven that runs more on device and you know maybe starts using some of the Gemini Nano, you said? Yeah, that's um, already being used on the, the Pixel 8 Pixel Pro, and I think their next year version will be using that. And I think on on that point, the the chat interface may be defensive against OpenAI, but the maybe more on the uh, attack angle, the offense angle would be, you know, what can they do to drive user adoption of their services? Like some, there's some extent there's like a synergistic aspect between Google and Apple, but they also have this competing aspect of their two Android versus iOS, and it's going to be really hard to convince an average U.S. consumer to go from their iPhone to something else. But if the technology is that good, maybe they would. And so it's going to be interesting to see, can the technology be get that good? And will Apple be far enough behind that 
that people would actually be convinced like, you know, what? I don't really need iMessage <laughs> and FaceTime. Look at all this time saved if I just had the new, you know, Google Pixel that can yeah. do amazing I'm, I'm things. I'm guessing this is the unsaid AI stuff that Google is working on <laughs> to support more like device-based things, you know, so that they don't get outcompeted with potentially things like this from Google. Yeah, cynical thing. Yeah. Maybe that's <laughs> why the iOS rollout so bad, you know, they're they're trying to they're prioritizing Android, Android, Android. And that's probably a little too cynical for for the show. <laughs> But but I do think that one of the cool implications for Google is I know that there's a lot changing in like the SEO world. For example, if a lot more queries are being answered by like chat interfaces and not necessarily going through like the traditional search interface, that does change a lot in terms of like um, how Google makes money or like search engines make money. So if they are able to monetize even a subset of users through a paid product like this, either on the workspace side of things or on the consumer side of things, probably buys them that buffer for the scenario where there is an impact on their search business. Yeah, at the same time, you know, they do control the interface. So if they find that there's a lot of people like me that aren't willing to pay for it yet, yep. well, everything for consumers on the internet is free because of advertising. And so yep. they own the interface, they could add advertising support. I would to be really interface. surprised if it works as effectively as the links model, you know? Like the links model is like, black and white right it's like you search for something there are like 10 links returned you add three links it's very black and white you like click on that and you make money off of it it just seems really hard even if you've optimized the hell out of it i just don't think it could if monetize as effectively on a chat based interface but yeah i think it's yeah. a- I think it's yeah. it, it'll be weird i think they'll they'll need some designers and some product managers figuring out but i think some queries that would have ads for it that are, I'm like, hey, give me like an authentic poke restaurant on yep. Maui. It gave me results, it gave me lists, and you know, I could click through to them. But why can't that list also have of its four links? Why can't there be yeah. one, you know, that's sponsored or um, like asking for inspiration for shoes that are kind of like these shoes I already have? Why can't, you know, two out of yep. five of them be ad links? It can be like labeled as an ad, but you know, yeah, so that's fair. I do feel like I don't know how that'll evolve if things become like evolve towards more of this agent experience where it's doing stuff for you like intentionally, where a robot doesn't look at ads, it just looks at the you know the facts. And and so, but like I'm right now, like le- I'm probably less bullish on having ads in like a chat based interface, and maybe more bullish about like the amount of data it opens up and like gets Google and you know. I don't think we've talked a lot about the Google privacy sandbox and some of those changes that Google's doing to essentially hunker down their walls to kind of control more of the ads value chain of things. But I'm probably more bullish about them going in the play of like, hey, this is a chat-based interface. It gets us more data about users. It maybe helps us show relevant ads and it gives us access to information about users, which is basically not available to anybody else. But how do they monetize that value? And, and if they yeah, get rid of search is <laughs> such a high percentage of their, their revenue, like sure that you, you can't escape the fact that a YouTube video is going to have an ad in it or yeah, a news article is going to have an ad in it. Yeah. But like the, your search interface and not having an ad in it is like so core to how they make, you know, 90% of their revenue, 90% plus. So I think that they probably don't want to be the first ones to do it, but if someone else does it and it's a better replacement <laughs> and it's going to be better, they're going to want to be there. And so that's why... I kind of do see your point about it being a defensive thing. Be there, be in the space. Yep. Does this chat thing replace general search? Maybe, maybe not. Yep. And if it starts to be ready to, you know, 
I don't know, it's doomsday scenario for your search revenue. So like, how are you going to, I don't see consumers paying for their search engine ever. So it's, it's the paid model is going to have struggle with adoption. So I'm looking at ads, but yeah. So how else can you reduce costs? And I think it's a, it's a much longer topic to discuss another time. Well, fun times. Curious to see how this plays out. I guess that's the two topics we had for today. This was a good conversation. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or now on YouTube. If that's your preferred platform, you can always subscribe on Substack and get notified whenever we have new episodes coming in. We are trying to get new episodes out weekly-ish. So far, so good, James. So far, so good. And every week, and I think our users are going to be expecting better and better audio quality and I don't know if we can get past this. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll keep trying. Sounds good. This is a fun conversation. Uh, thank you for listening to us, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye.